One of the reasons we are taking a rather slow course in the book of Romans here is because it's very easy to, to read Romans on the surface and, and miss what you're not supposed to miss. It's really easy to read Romans too lightly and uh, miss words like righteousness or apostle or justice. So I want to encourage you to be patient in our in our study of this truly one of the one of the most articulate and, and deep explanations of the gospel in the New Testament. So be be prayerful with me as we study this. Let's let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Almighty oh, God who has revealed yourself to certain witnesses from the beginning of time and made a record and preserved a record for us that we might know you in truth and we might apprehend, we might understand the difference between light and dark and we might pursue you in truth. Oh God, help us. As we study this remarkable piece of scripture, God, please strengthen faith, soften hardness. Lord, give us an understanding, a deeper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the gospel revealed to us. I do pray these things in the name of the Savior. Amen. If we were to read all the way from from 1 through 17, some of the key thoughts, some of the key things you would see is that Paul is an apostle, which is a, a very crucial calling for you and I to understand in terms of the New Testament's witness to us. The apostles are, among other things, the the prophets of the New Testament, each one selected by name from the Lord Jesus, each one appointed by the Lord Jesus to be witnesses. He's a slave of the Lord Jesus, verse um one says he's a, a bond servant, but if we were to render that literally from the Greek, we would see he's a slave of Jesus Christ, who is a son of David according to the flesh. He's a son of God according to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. These, I'm, I'm just kind of pulling some phrases out of what we've studied so far. In, in God's grace, he gave apostles to Christians for the obedience of faith. That was one of the things, and, and we'll see that repeated in this study. 
The apostles were given to the church so that the church, not, not the building, the ecclesia, the group, the congregation would, would be blessed with the obedience of faith for his name, you'll see in verse 5. The obedience of faith is something for his name, you see in verse 5. And when you think about the obedience of faith, There are some who choose to live their lives in such a way that in their mind they, they approve of God and the things that God is doing. They, they, they don't consider themselves antagonistic toward God or towards Jesus Christ or towards His Spirit, but the actions or the works of their mouths, the actions and the works of their hands, their their very working out of their lives are very much caught up in the world. In, in other words, there are many people who claim the name of Christ, but whose lives reflect nothing to do with being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And it's very crucial for us to understand that the apostles were granted to the church for the obedience of faith and then for the sake of his name. The obedience of faith doesn't make you uh, legally right before God. No man is going to find himself right before God by keeping his legal code. The obedience of faith is for the name of Jesus Christ. It brings honor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the same way that a man or a woman promises to love in marriage and they keep themselves devoted to one another in the marriage, when, when the man or the woman is, is flirtatious or plays around in any way with any of their uh, promises made in the covenant of marriage, when, when a man or a woman does that, they shame themselves, they shame their spouse, they shame the, the, the ordinance of marriage in, in doing that. So Christians don't become Christians by following Christian laws. They become Christians by the new birth given to them by the Spirit and by faith. But they walk with Him in the obedience of faith for the sake of the name. It's how they honor the Savior. It's how they themselves derive the blessing given to them in the new birth and in the new life. Obedience of faith is for the name of the Lamb who gave His life and His blood to atone for sin. It's how we honor our Savior. So these are some key concepts that we've spent some time studying on. By the time we get to verse 15, he says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He desires to make the name known, the name of Christ known to those in Rome, to make the life, the Christian life of of the obedience of faith known to those who are in Rome. And those in Rome 
will either increase their adornment of the name, they will they will grow in their ability to adorn the name by their attention to the apostle, or they will bring the name into disrepute. And what these Christians do not know in Rome, what they do not know is something that you and I know because of just the unfolding of, of history. What they don't know is that their emperor, the Roman emperor, will very, very soon here in Rome unleash a, 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 a tyranny and a cruelty on these Christians such as has rarely been seen in history. The one who is emperor in Rome when this letter is received is Nero. The letter is probably received around 58, maybe 55, and, and Nero will begin to burn Christians alive and put them in the arena by the year 64. The cruelty that this 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 man was to unleash on Christians was was just awful. And so, in God's providence, they receive this letter that gives them the depth of knowledge, the doctrine of the gospel and of salvation that their faith has deep deep roots and understanding in deep and profound truths, so that when physical threat is coming upon them, when when emotional threat is coming upon them to abandon their hope and their their belief in Christ, they, 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 they will find their faith built on deep, deep, broad, theologically unassailable truths so they can stand through what is coming in their future. Their temptation on many accounts to deny Christ will be strengthened or will be averted by the help given to them in this letter sent to the Christians in Rome. He's ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And then verse 16 says, and this is where we were at last week, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, make sure you note the, the mention the Apostle makes of the Jew and of the Greek. The worldviews of the Jew and the Greek who are receiving this letter are just drastically different from one another. The way the Jews understand who God is and, and what their commitments are to Him are very different from what the Gentiles' understanding is. And those, those differences are throughout the New Testament. But what Paul is teaching them is it doesn't matter if you are a Jew and it doesn't matter if you are a Gentile or a Greek or a barbarian. Your um, access to the Creator and the Savior is by the one Savior. It is by the one atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God of salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And one of the first things I want to consider with you is the gospel among many. So as we're looking at this text, And from a distance here at the moment, I want you to think with me about the gospel. 
or the one gospel among many. And Paul says there is no shame in Christ's gospel. And as I said last week, we spent a fair bit of time considering that. And if you didn't get to hear it, it's, it's on our sermon audio page. God's power to salvation to everyone who would believe is revealed in Christ's gospel. And I, I believe that this gospel is in view here very subtly contrasting. It is contrasting with many other gospels. And so these Christians, these Roman Christians, need help. He, he desires to establish them as one of the things that he says will be accomplished when he gets to go and visit them. I wish to establish you, he says. Make you firm. And he wants them to consider their present knowledge of Christ, their present pursuit of Christ, as something on the way to being more firmly established. The Christian life is a, is a progress. It's always a progress. It's always a movement toward greater degrees of maturity. You cannot now be... None of you can now be what God intends you to be by your faith in Christ. Every one of us is in progress. So God's gospel, verse 16, the gospel of Christ, previously in the same chapter was referred to as God's gospel, is first up. And then we're going to consider about God's righteousness being revealed from faith to faith, which he ends with this phrase, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There's an argument here. Paul argues that in the gospel of Christ, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. And if you look down at your Bibles, you'll, you'll, you'll discover that this is kind of a peculiar argument, maybe to every single one of you. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, he says in verse 17. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just will live by faith. That's the last point of his argument. As it is written, the just will live by faith. He closed his argument with that. And, and I found this argument to be difficult for us who aren't Jews, especially for us who aren't Jews and are not familiar with Habakkuk, which is where that quote came from. But as far as Paul was concerned when he's writing this, that kind of proved his argument. And we're going we're gonna to get to that. I want to really help you understand how he's trying to make this point. You see, verse 1 of Romans, chapter 1, he's called an apostle and separated to the gospel of God, right? If someone doesn't believe in God's gospel, couldn't we say that they believe in something else? I mean, isn't that a given? If you don't believe in God's gospel, you believe in something. So here's where my, my thinking comes from as, as we begin thinking about this. When I say one gospel or the gospel among many, everybody believes at least semi-consciously, some set of 
of principles and, and premises that end with some kind of conclusion to life. Or in other words, everybody has some vague ideas of, of what's going to happen when they die, even if their idea is something like, well, I'm not really sure. That is a worldview. It, it, it is a, I'm, I'm going to use, when you have one quote, it's called scare quotes. And so it's, 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 it's a little bit of sarcasm. And so if somebody believes in that other gospel, so when I say the, the, the gospel, this is an alternative gospel that people might believe in. If it's not the gospel, real quotes, then they believe in a gospel. So if we begin this thought saying and assuming that God's gospel is truth, just follow with me, just think through this with me. God's gospel is truth. Who would gain by saying it isn't true? If I begin the argument saying God's gospel is true, who gains by saying it's not true? Satan. Thank you. Satan. He, he is the deceiver. He was the murderer from the beginning, is how the Lord Jesus referred to him. Another person who would benefit is all of those, everyone who feels imposed on by the gospel. What I mean is, is you probably don't know anybody who doesn't know something about the true gospel. I think everybody you know knows something about the true gospel. And there are, are terms and, and, and facts and premises in the gospel that when most people hear them, they find offensive. And so, going back to the original question, <clears throat> who gains by saying the gospel isn't true? Those who find it offensive or irritating gain by saying it is not so. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. So th these are two reasons why someone might say it's not so. Number one, you find it inconvenient for it to be so, so you can say it's not so. Number two, Satan says anything other than the gospel is the gospel, and he gains by this gospel. So this is why there are many different gospels. The unwilling hearts of men and Satan's purpose for his own life. He suggested the first substitute gospel in Genesis 3.1 when he asked the question, did God indeed say? Okay, the, the very first truth that had consequences of life is met with a gospel presentation from Satan where his words are, did God indeed Say And in Genesis 3-4, he also said to Eve, in Genesis 3-4, you will not surely die. Oh, yeah. Now that's a gospel truth. If you eat of that fruit, you will die. And the day you eat of it, you will die.
Eve did not not believe in God. She simply massaged his word a little bit for what she felt was a benefit. She perceived a benefit in there with the help of Satan. Don't don't get me wrong. He, he was certainly helping her with this. She didn't not believe in God. She knew what his word was, but she found a potential benefit. She perceived a benefit by working the words just a little bit, didn't she? So picture the religious. The religious who don't really like the God of Scripture because he is so exacting. Cain is one that you know. Cain doesn't like the God of Scripture, the God of a black and white word, because it requires something of him that he finds offensive, doesn't he? The first false worshiper, Cain. What about Nadab and Abihu of Leviticus chapter 10? Moses had been told how to construct the tabernacle. He had been trained and instructed how to ordain ministers in the tabernacle. And they had been told to begin making sacrifices to to ordain, to begin their worship of God. And after their first uh, wave of 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 obedient worship, Nadab and Abihu, who were sons of Aaron, they went, and the, the scripture says they went and got their own censers, which was a, a bronze pot in which they could put incense and light it on fire and, and go present that to God as, as an offering of worship. And that was actually something prescribed, but they weren't told to do it. They, they thought, oh, this would be a great time for us to get involved in this worship. This would be a, a, a wonderful time for us to jump in and start taking part and taking place in it. But they weren't instructed to do it. They did it their own way. They, they did it in their own time. They did it at their own instruction. So in other words, what I'm telling you is these are examples of very religious people. Cain bringing his offering. Nadab and Abihu wanting to bring incense before God but doing it in their own way. They don't like God's prescription. They don't want His way. They want to do religion their own way. There are also those found in Matthew chapter 7 and and verse 22, these people who tell demons to leave people and they work miracles they cast out demons in the name of Jesus and they do miracles in the name of Jesus in Matthew 7:22 and the Lord Jesus says that at the end of the age he tells them depart from me i never knew you there's there's another example of a person pursuing their own outworking of service to god their own outworking of religion these are examples of of religious people who find the word of God irritating, too exacting. Do you see it? How, the, how this is its own kind of gospel? Yeah. They're doing their own thing. All of these know of God. Every single one of these, they know of Him but they prefer a God who is a little bit less biblical. (laughs) Ever thought of that? 
They want a God. They want a religion, but they don't want it very biblical. Oh, let me let me encourage you, men and women. Find time and make time to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by your labors in His Word. You learn to know Him. You learn to love Him. You learn to walk with Him. Do you know the Christ, the Gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5 is a short summary. It's a very short New Testament summary. It says, I declare to you the Gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word, which I preached to you. The word which I preached to you is an objective, full encompassing statement of God and His holiness and man and His sinfulness and the repentance of man. He says, You're saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that one Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. God in human flesh, the Lord Jesus incarnate. He died a sinner's death, cursed. All would hang from the tree, would be cursed. Died a sinner's death without sin. Receiving the wrath of God reserved for sinners. Just mentioning some of these little points, and and, and I want to challenge you from, from the reference we read in 1 Corinthians 15 or some of these points I'm making. When you yourself are listing out what are the essentials of the gospel, can I explain the gospel to somebody clearly in a few minutes? God in human flesh died a sinner's death on the cross. Receiving the wrath of God reserved for sinners who died and rose again. All men are guilty in sin. Must pay sin's debt. The wages of sin is death. Faith in Christ is to believe that his death can be substituted for yours. And it is substituted. His death is yours by your repentance and your faith in Him. Believing Christ is essential, isn't it? Believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ is essential for His righteousness. If you don't trust in Christ for His righteousness, then you can have no righteousness on the day of your judgment. He is essential for your believing. He is essential for your righteousness. He's essential for your living. This is the gospel. The death and the life of Christ. The sinner dying with Christ. 
and living with Christ. Paul's gospel of Christ and its shameless proclamation, and, and I, I say that, he says, There's, I have no shame. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it offers salvation. The gospel, we, we see here in this interesting introduction to it that God's righteous will live. Now, this is a really crucial, crucial thing for you and I to get. And I, I wondered if in some ways we're a little bit uh, isolated, a little bit numb from the offer of this hopefulness that Paul offers here. It offers salvation. He says, therein, in the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's just a phrase pulled right out of the passage here. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then he says, the just shall live by faith. Now he, he quotes it here, he quotes it in Galatians, and if we think that maybe Paul wrote Hebrews, it's also quoted in Hebrews. It's quoted these three times in the New Testament. The just will live by faith. So in the beginning of this argument, in the beginning of this letter that Paul is writing to Christians He's persuading everybody who wants to know and to have eternal life that this line of argument proves it. The just will live by faith. The Jews could go to this line and they would say, oh, yeah, that's right. The just will live by faith. Verse 16 brags or verse 16 holds out. I'm, I'm using the word brag in, in its great sense. He's so pleased. Paul is so happy to be able to say that the gospel reveals the righteousness. It is the power of God to salvation. He's so joyful to be able to say that. And so for someone to suggest that anyone should be Ashamed of the gospel is, is ridiculous to Paul. So he's bragging on the greatness and the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Let me say it like this. I'm going to put Paul's thoughts in slightly different words. This truth, of course, regarding salvation for those who believe is already obvious. As you remember, it is written that just will live by faith. This truth is obvious. You know this truth. It is written that just will live by faith. But when I read that the first many times, I don't clearly understand the line of this argument. What is God's righteousness? What is meant by that when he says in it the righteousness of God is revealed? What is meant by that? Why was it concealed? Why was the righteousness of God concealed? He says in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, what was concealing it? What does Paul mean by saying in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith 
to faith. Actually, this, this particular question, when he says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, is uh, the subject of many different commentator understandings. But the last line, as it is written, the just will live by faith, that's supposed to clarify and, and cement meaning for his readers. And we're going to get to that. We're going to, I'm going to help you understand that. What I want you to ponder for a moment is the point of living. The just will live. Because I think this one's easier to follow and I think it helps us get the argument. Why has Paul begun by highly lifting up the gospel saying the just shall live? And if we kind of get rid of some distracting things for a moment and if the righteousness of God is revealed, the just will live. The word just and the word righteousness are, are, are twins to one another. And he says, the just shall live. So let's start by saying, and let me push and prod your thinking to realize that the offer of life means the escape of death. Okay? The offer of life means the escape of death. To live or life means to be possessed of vitality. <laughs> I love how dictionaries make things so unclear by phrases like that. To be possessed of vitality. That's what it means to live. Or in other words, to live means to live. It means to be full of life. The just shall live is a future tense Indicative, future tense. It's something that is going to take place in the future. Jesus said in Luke 4, 4. Jesus answered him saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That's how man is going to live, according to Jesus. Man will live by every word of God. Now we see a dimension of to live has a very spiritual connotation to it, which we were able to read this morning in our passage in John 6. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of the mouth of God. Live according to every word of God. Well, let's keep working on our understanding of, of what he means here. What is life the opposite of death? Okay, well, this gives us some help, I think. To live means not to be dead. Okay? Keep thinking with me. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, being enticed and pleased to consider the tempter's gospel. Okay? The very taste of it did what? As soon as she tasted it, what happened to Eve? You remember? Her eyes were opened. Her eyes were opened. And what is the first thing Adam and Eve did when they ate the fruit? Covered their body. They covered themselves. Yeah. And they hid. Why did they hide? 
Shame. They were ashamed. What else? Fear, scared. When, when, when did they hide, if you can recall the text? They heard the footsteps of God in the garden. Okay, so their, their fear wasn't just a generalized fear, was it? Their fear was a fear of God. Their fear was a fear of judgment. Their, their fear was something they had never known before, is it? They had not known this. They had never anticipated or felt anything like this. The first death was dreadful fear resulting from their knowledge that God knew about their wickedness. So they hid from it. What did they fear God would do to them? He would keep his word, wouldn't he? Yeah. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So they hid. And then when God spoke to them, what did he do to them? Well, I'll tell you. He expelled them. He removed them from the place that was created for them. When did he let them come back? Never. So as, as we think about the early effects of death, it resulted in a, a powerfully tangible fear of God and his judgment. It also resulted in a very real separation from him and what he created for them. Their lives were so drastically affected by that death it, it, I don't think we, we even begin to get it. It was a profound destruction on the life of men when they sinned. Fear and separation. The promise of death in Genesis 2.17 was really the beginning of death that they experienced when they, when they heard God in the garden. That was the beginning of death. There's another death mentioned that I'll read to you from Matthew 8.12. Matthew 8.12 says, The children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. This is a reference to those who are scoffing at the words of Jesus. These are... Um, there was a non-Jewish response to the Lord Jesus, a, a centurion, and his, his competent belief that the Lord Jesus was almighty and powerful impressed the Lord Jesus. And, and the Lord Jesus was commenting on this man's faith compared to the faithlessness he had seen in village after village in the areas where he was ministering. In one of his closing comments, he says, The children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's another picture of death at the end of the age. In summary, Scripture never adores death. Scripture never adores death. Death is lonely. When you're in a place where there is darkness... That implies you, you can't see anything, and that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
It's lonely, it's suffering, it is apart from goodness, it is apart from company or fellowship would be another word. Death is warned of and men are asked to know it and avoid it by, by God's very words. God's words are live. Hear and live. He warned Adam and Eve against death. No person ever samples death first to see if they like it or not. By the time you get there, it's too late, right? So your and I only way to contemplate on this subject is on the word of someone else. We can only listen to the word and the testimony of the one who has warned us to avoid death. It is the unavoidable judgment of God. Hebrews 9.27 I say this often when I'm witnessing to people. It is such a vital and crucial thing to warn people. It is appointed for man once to die. And then what happens? What's the end of that verse say? And then face the judgment. That's it. When, when, when you die, it's, it's time to Receive the judgment. It is the unavoidable judgment of God. It is an appointment. It is an appointment where all, every individual man will face an examination. Some will pass and be given life. Revelation 20 verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Some will face that moment in, in Hebrews 9.27 and they will be blessed forever. But many will go on to what the scripture calls the second death in Revelation 21, verse 8. But the fearful, you know, fear is a thing that threatens you away from trusting in Christ and believing in Christ. And so here it begins, Revelation 21, 8. The fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers that word could probably also be drug users, the word sorcerers, and idolaters and liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The author of life is a means to escape death. The author of life, when, when we read here, the just shall live. It is contrasted strongly against the death that is in the future of all men. The just shall live. But Paul mentions, Paul, Paul puts this out for you to ponder that you know there is a life. There is life in the future. For the just, let's ponder salvation and life. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Again, in verse 16, it is the power of God and salvation. 
from death. To everyone who believes, a Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live. The revelation of salvation in the gospel of Christ is the singular hope. You realize what an amazing road that justification and faith is? Do you realize what an incredible reality it is that there is a salvation available in the universe? He says the just will live. It's the singular hope for all who long to live. And Paul says, the just will live. Have you understood that death, the death you and I know in this world, have you understood that death is the beginning of God's wrath against sin and that life is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you pondered that? Death is the beginning of wrath and life is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I are to see this, you and I are to hear Paul saying this with an amazing, with an incredible hope, with a joyful hope. Because death is so gruesome. It's so awful. It's lonely. It's it's full of suffering. It was never meant to be a reward or something good. Death is the ultimate corruption in this world. But salvation and, and life is offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's testimony to men. This is God's word to men. The infinite God, the holy God has made this word known to men who would humbly seek and humbly hear with ears and heart believing in the word of God. In his kindness, God gave to Christ. In his generosity, he gave the Lamb who took sin's death for sinners who believe in his death instead of theirs. If you believe, then Christ's death has become your death and Christ's life has become your life which is joy. It's victory over death. It's hope over death. The Lord Jesus rose from the grave. He lives. He died to sin. Christ died to sin. Have you died with Christ to sin? Have you died with Christ to sin? Your baptism is a picture of it. Dying with Christ is is seeing your own sin completely paid for in the death of Christ. It is your death with Him that takes away sin's guilt from you because He died for sinners. If you believe in the death of Christ for sinners... 
if you believe that he died for you so that you might live with him, then you have not only access to the only hope that there is, you have the only hope of life that there is in Christ. If he is your savior, if he is the one who has taken death, then you will live. We will consider more of how this works in the days to come because he does say the just shall live. We do need to understand how it is that justice and righteousness has to do with this life that is given to us in Christ. But I'll summarize it saying it is the righteousness of Christ that becomes the sinner's confidence before a God who must judge all sin. Your confidence is the righteousness of Christ. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11.23 and ponder on the on the body and the blood of Christ just for a moment. We're going to take a couple more minutes in worshiping Him. Paul taught Christians to remember the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons it's important for you to worship and to remember the life of Christ is because not only did He die on the, on the cross, a sinner's death, the Lord Jesus lived a perfect life. The righteousness of Christ is, is a necessity for you to be able to possess any righteousness on the day of judgment. If the Lord Jesus didn't live a perfectly righteous life, then, then you can get no righteousness from a man to have on your account. And the Lord Jesus is perfectly man and, and perfectly God. Paul taught us here, 1 Corinthians 11:23. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. They're looking at real bread. They're, they're eating real bread. And he says, Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup in our hands, this cup with wine in it is, is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Eating the bread and, and drinking the cup is a, it, it, it's a memorial. It is a celebration of the death and of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which became the atonement for our sin. And therefore, he goes on to say, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. In other words, when you eat it and when you drink it, it is strictly done as an act of memory and worship to our Lord. He who drinks and eats in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. I'm going to just pass these things out here, and you guys can take a few minutes in prayer.
take a moment in prayer and, and confess your great need of a Savior and confess and, and glorify God in your finding the Savior, Jesus Christ, who took sin's penalty in the behalf of sinners, who shed his blood and atoned for sin, a glorious privilege, what a joyful, from our perspective, unthinkable blessing that we have received from the kindness of God. Oh God, we love you. We love this Savior who humbled himself and became a man. We're grieved that the wrath poured out on a sinner was due for me had to fall on the sun. The innocent, precious son. Oh God, we love you and we praise you. And in his name, in his glorious name, we thank you. Amen. Let's eat the bread and drink the cup. Please stand and we'll sing a closing hymn together. I'll tell you what number it is in a second. 54. Thank you. 54.
and uh, we'll set up a couple tables and have lunch for those of you that want to have lunch with us. So let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for announcing to us, to everyone, to the man, is a sinner who must die and face that day, that appointment. Oh God, how I praise you for the the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and and we praise you in his name. Amen. So I'm just going to stack up these back two rows of uh, uh, chairs there and then we'll set up a couple tables.